0: A second. <laughs> All right. Happy first day of spring. How many of you are tired of winter? Great. We got more of it coming tomorrow. But <laughs> thank you. All right. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter three, shall we? Where we left off last week, and it is one of my favorite portions of Scripture because it is so encouraging, despite being under house arrest in Rome and awaiting trial, Paul declares that the highest goal of his life, the overarching passion is not to get out of jail, but the obsession that drives his life he'd outlined for us in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, literally being conformed to his death, and so, somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he constantly throughout the whole epistle uh, is is caught up in rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in the gift that they had, had brought him. Uh, that was the thing... I, I, I am in need of personal heroes myself, and I think this generation is. And we look to sports stars, and they fail us miserably from a spiritual standpoint. They are not good role models. Your best role models are not the people that play sports. And what is man's obsession with things round, anyway? All things balls, golf balls, and basketballs, and baseballs, and footballs. What, let, can we just say that none of that has anything to do with God? I mean, I don't know why we where did we become so obsessed with all things round that we can throw? I mean, I did that when I was three and four and five years old. But at some point in time, does it seem reasonable that we should move on past that? Certainly those people that play those those sports may be excellent athletes, but that does not make them good role models. If you're going to uh, admire somebody for their statistics, Go, turn to like Ephesians and look at the Apostle Paul. Look in the Old Testament of David and his heart for God. You look at a Samuel, you look at uh, Heze- uh, Hezekiah in the Old Testament, you look at these great saints and those are role models that we need because you follow your role model. We call them sports icons, there's even TV shows out there called America's Idol, and that doesn't strike you as being fundamentally wrong on so many levels? An idol? Is that what we're lifting up now? Paul says, here's, here's what's on my heart and mine. Even sitting under house arrest in jail and, and having nothing, I can't earn any money, I can't pay the rent, I'm dependent upon others. And yet he is constantly rejoicing because he says, the number one thing that drives his life is I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Not I want more entertainment. I want a bigger this or a fancier that. I want to know Jesus Christ. Now, he knew him. What he's saying is I want to know him more. I want to know him better. Paul had an insatiable appetite, not for sports, not for entertainment. He had an insatiable appetite for God. And he couldn't find any way to quench that, but it didn't deter him at all from pursuing God with everything that is within him. In verse 10 that we'd covered last week, I want to know Christ. Gnosko is the original Greek word. It means to know through personal experience. Not because you read it in a book, you came to know the person. That's the experience that he's talking about. I know that everybody in this room knows about Jesus. That does not mean you know Jesus. You can know all about George Washington and all of his exploits in the Revolutionary War, but that doesn't mean you have a personal relationship with George Washington. All of us know about Christ, but few of us know him to the depth that Paul knew him. And I wonder if it is not because we do not pursue Christ the way Paul did. We live in a day and age of endless entertainment I sucked in, got sucked into it at an early age because TV hadn't been long invented before, uh, before myself. And I was raised by the TV and we've learned it's taken over life today. And what TV hasn't taken over, the internet and your phones have. And so God has dropped into the background somewhere. He's an afterthought. If it's not too inconvenient, we may talk to him in prayer. We may open, even open our Bibles. What a novel thought average household in America has five Bibles, but nobody reads them. Isn't that oxymoronic? That, that should not be so. How many Bibles do you have? I'm, you have five? <laughs> I have 5.1. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's kind of like instructions on your ice maker on your fridge. If you don't follow the instructions, if you don't get in the book, you're never going to know how to fix things. You're, everybody is looking for a fix to the things going on in their lives. I want a fix to the trials, the struggles, the issues, the sicknesses, the people that die in my life, and the things that are going on. Everybody is looking for something to fix them. Don't you understand only God can do that? Only God can do that. And yet we turn to God as a last resort. We've even come up with that, the stupidest of all expressions in American experience. Well, when all else fails, pray. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Pray up front, then maybe the dumb things won't happen. Does that just make sense? Be a little proactive in this. But I find that that the men and women in our churches tend to struggle with two different issues. Men struggle with spiritual laziness, and the tendency is to abdicate spiritual responsibility. So men don't read, don't pray. And their wives feel insecure because of that. And because men are not the spiritual head of, of their homes and the covering over their wives that they should be, women tend to live in fear. And Satan is incessant on picking on both of those. So the more insecure a woman gets, the more fearful she is. The husband sees that, wants nothing to do that. so he just And there's this growing divide. Where the men won't pursue God, won't be the spiritual leaders, won't read, won't pray, leave all of that up to the raising of the children to the wife to, uh, to the wife, and you should tell them about the Lord. And the men do nothing. They come home from work and want to kick back in their lazy boy recliner, and say, I've done my part. Your part hasn't even begun. You've spiritually accomplished nothing by going to work. If you start that day off, however, in the Word of God and in prayer, and you got the praise and worship. Music playing instead of the country western music playing? Huh? I'm stepping on toes here because you're guilty. You're guilty of that. I like country western. In fact, a good friend of mine told me once, uh, there's only two kinds of music in this world. There's country and there's western. <laughs> Who knew? I want to be, that doesn't build me up in the Lord doesn't, I grew up in the 80s loving rock and roll music. I was in a rock and roll band as a kid that toured Europe. I, I loved that stuff. It doesn't spiritually edify me. doesn't build me up in the Lord. I still like it, but it only serves to distract me from a spiritual pursuit. Paul had reached the point in his walk with the Lord where nothing distracted him anymore. Didn't matter if he was in jail. didn't matter if he was rich or poor. It didn't matter his circumstances, whether it didn't, didn't matter. He said, "I've learned the secret of being content. Most people haven't. So you want to know how he found it. He found it in God. He didn't find it in a shrink. He didn't find it in, in a YouTube video or a self-improvement course or some seminar that you pay a, an obscene amount of money to go to, and the, the effects last all of a week. So you got to go to the next one, and the next one, and the next one, looking for some spiritual high or some insight into how to live life in a sinful, fallen world. Paul said, this is simple for me. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection, that's the power to live successfully in this life. That's the power that we all need. But the power that the men run from by simply doing nothing. We expect our lives to go well, but as Christians, if we're not reading and praying and worshiping, your life will not go well. Can I just tell you that? If this is a new revelation for you, great, this is your wake-up call. This is your wake-up call. Get with it. So men, if you want a good marriage, you have to be a gentle, loving, not dictator in your home, but spiritual covering To all of those under your roof. That is your God ordained duty. You want a secure wife? You want a wife who's free from fear? Then be the man of God that you're called to be. You be a David. You be a worshiper. You be a reader of God's word. You be a Paul that says, I'm not bothered by circumstances. Then I'll tell you, your wife will be as secure as any woman on the planet. So men tend to be spiritually lazy, and women tend to be obsessed by fearful things. And it could be anything. Satan doesn't care what you're afraid of. But if a husband's a jerk, the wife's afraid, the husband's going to leave me. She's bound up in that fear. She's bound up in that insecurity. Paul says, I want to know Christ. The most secure woman in the room is the one whose husband is obsessed with knowing Christ. That's why verse 10 is so important, and that is one of your many highlighter chapters today. This is your spiritual homework. I'm telling you that God has called you to spiritual headship, and our tendency has been to abdicate that responsibility since Adam played the spiritual deadbeat in the Garden of Eden. You remember this story. Let me just rehearse it for you. <clears throat> God had said, you know, you can eat of all the trees in the garden, but there's a couple of trees in the center. I don't want you to mess with this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of that, you'll surely die. Now it says that Satan was in the Garden of Eden. And then Eve decides it's a good idea to snuggle up to the forbidden tree and have a talk with a 40-foot boa constrictor. I don't know what woman in her right mind would have even entertained that thought. Talking to snakes is okay. And she's having this dialogue with Satan who says, oh, God's got ulterior motives. He doesn't want you to be like him. Eat of the fruit. Look, it looks good. Smells good. What kind of fruit was it? I don't think it was a fruit. I think it was a foot-long chili cheese coney from Sonic. (laughs) And she's tempted. She's tempted. You split open the bottom, you push it out, and you want to eat that first bite. And things changed as soon as she did. And it says that then she gave some of that forbidden fruit, whatever it was. She gave it to her husband that was with her. He had said what up to this point? Nothing. Nothing. He didn't say, honey, what are you talking to snakes for? All right, all right, isn't that the tree that we're supposed to be staying away from, honey? What did he do? He abdicated his position of spiritual headship in the family unit. He should have been the covering of his wife and said, this is not going to end well, honey. Let's get out of here. Just as fast as we can. Let's see how fast we can run this away towards God and away from the snake. What do you say? That's what he should have done. Men have a tendency to be spiritually lazy. They'll have a cup of coffee before God They'll turn on the TV before God. They'll check their cell phone before God. They'll go to work before God. They'll watch their sports before God. They'll mow their lawn before God. And then wonder why their home is in disarray. Your spiritual priorities are in disarray. Get them straight. You want a happy home? How many of you guys would like to have a happy home? Let me see your hands. Come on, put them up, put them up. No, I want hell on earth. I want a disgruntled wife. I want kids that hate my guts and a wife who lives in constant fear. You'll have a better home if you're the man of God that God's called you to be. If you mimic Paul, there's a role model for you. Mimic Paul. Make God and the pursuit of Jesus Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. I want a fellowship. In sharing in his sufferings. He went through stuff. I go through stuff. That's okay. God got the son through it. God will get me through it. I am a child of God as well. And so somehow to attain from the resurrection from the dead. Paul says in verse 11, boy, that's an eternal mystery. How we sinners can be brought into a right relationship with a holy God. Oh, man. Becoming like him in his death. Mm. Jesus was dead to the things of this world. This generation is not. We're not dead to cell phones. We're not dead to the internet. We're not dead to TV. We're not dead to the things that are common obsessions with men today. If you struggle with pornography, it's because you struggle in your relationship with God. If you struggle with internet obsession, you're struggling because of your lack of a relationship with God. Make Him your first priority. Make it your Make it your obsession that before your feet hit the ground coming out of bed, I'm going to worship. Just before, before you get out of bed, start the day off. Say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I just want to be right. Make me whole. Cleanse me of sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. It takes you 10 seconds to pray that before you get out of bed. Why don't you do it? You know you should do it, but you don't do it. Why? Because men tend to be spiritually lazy. And then other obsessions take control of our lives. Things like sports and computers and cell phones. I gotta get here and I gotta do this and do that. No, there's a part of me that still needs to die. Because we haven't died to the things of this world. It's not for everybody. But I wound up giving up my cell phone about three years ago and found it to be one of the most liberating things in my entire life. I don't want a cell phone. Don't want one back. I don't, didn't get anything about spam calls anyway because nobody calls me, so why have a phone. Don't need it. Computer's probably the next thing to go. The Internet, who needs that? TV, that needs to go, but I like my news shows and I like to know if it's going to snow tomorrow or not and the fact that today's the first day of spring. But there's nothing. Uh, why do you have to subscribe to 258,000 TV channels to get the one that you like? Does that make sense, Daniel? I hate that. I hate that with a passion. There are... I don't. I don't know. The numbers go up to over a thousand on, on the channel guide. I, I watch three channels. I watch the History Channel. I watch Weather Channel, and a, and I watch a news channel. I don't need the rest of them, but they won't get rid of the rest of them because they want you to watch the garbage and be obsessed with that and waste your time. How much time do you spend a night watching TV on average? How much time a day do you spend in the Word of God on an average? That should be all the convicting you need, right there. We have learned to become comfortable with compromised ideals. And it describes the lukewarm and Laodicean church that is the last church age before the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns to the earth, will he find faith? Internet obsession, pornography obsession, TV obsession, sports obsession, we think that's normal. Jesus says, am I going to find any faith amongst the Christians these last days when I come back? I want him to find it in me. I want to become like him in death. Jesus was dead to the things of the world. And and becoming like him in his death is a continuous and ongoing work that God is doing in us if we will allow. As God abides in us, our prayer, our incessant prayer should be, God, make me like you. Make me like you. Make me like your son Jesus. Prioritize my life And now Paul, in a moment of confession, says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this. He's saying, guys, I'm not preaching this to you because I'm perfect. I haven't got there, but I am pursuing it with everything that is within me. I haven't quite grasped it all yet. Paul was probably, probably awfully close. That's what makes him such a good role model. But Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this or have been already been made perfect, but I press on. To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul says, I'm I'm not there. Now, we understand that from God's standpoint, we are perfect because we've been given the perfection of Jesus Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. So, in that aspect, we are perfect. But have you noticed in your day in and day out experience on earth, you're not there yet? Well, that's what Paul is saying. I know that positionally, we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus, but my feet are still stuck to this planet in a sinful and fallen world. But So God's still working on me, working on me, in me, through me. But positionally, I'm already perfect as far as that goes. But there's a lot of work to be done as long as I walk this earth. That's what Paul was talking about. Our experience in daily practice, the outworking of our faith is a process called sanctification. Big old long term that just means that every day you drop more dirt and pick up more the character and nature of Christ. The word perfect as used in the Bible of men usually doesn't refer to sinless perfection. Old Testament characters like Moses and Joshua, uh, they were described as blameless or wholly devoted, but not Not sinless men. I mean, every character in the Old Testament you look at, they had some issues. They had some issues. The term means to be whole. It means to be mature, complete. Here, perfection is what is in view, but it is all the same word. Context defines how it should be applied. And our sanctification won't find its completion here on this earth until Jesus comes back. There's always going to be work to be done. It's it. It's like we're a carrot in the hands of God, the great cook in the kitchen, and he's got a he's got a he's got a peeler, and he's just peeling off. You go there, that needs to go. Oh, that that really needs to go. You ever peel potatoes? My wife hates peeling potatoes. Asks me to do it all the time. So I peel the potatoes. And sometimes you peel it, and there's there's a black spot underneath. So what do I do? Peel again and peel again. Peel again. Peel again. Pretty soon there's no me tomat- no no potato left, but. You know, I got all the bad stuff off, and I go, here, here, baby, there's a potato about yay big, and I have to peel about 500 potatoes to get a meal's worth out of it, but that's what God's doing in your life and mine. Oh, dear friend, this has to go. I'm sorry, here's the, here's the carrot peeler. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's got to go. Well, there's a bad spot here. <sighs> the process is not always painless. The process is always necessary. Yield to it. Don't fight God on that or you'll find yourself kicking against the goads. Don't do that. Paul says, I'm not there. God is at work on me. When Christ comes back, then I'll be perfect. I'll be complete. And 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12, he says as much there. Now we see but in a poor reflection as in an old bronze mirror. But someday we're going to see him face to face. Now I know in part, he said he wanted to know Christ. He said, now I know in part I'm hindered by living in a sinful fallen world encumbered by sinful fallen flesh. I'm hindered by that. But someday all of those hindrances are going to be removed. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. That's what Paul's saying. It's the obsession of my life. Paul had no hobbies. He was obsessed with Christ. Paul had no distractions. There was no doubt in my mind that if he were to walk the earth today, he would not have a TV, he would not have a cell phone, he would not be plugged into the internet, because he was a man on a singular mission. And he worked as hard as he could, knowing that there was a limited opportunity, because at the end of his life, he knew when it came. He tells Timothy that in 2 Timothy. He anticipates it, but he saw every day before that as a day of opportunity, a day to serve the Lord, a day to build up the saints, a day to encourage them, a day to exhort them, which is strong encouragement. Paul says, that's my job. Someday I will will be perfect. He says, but I, look at verse 12, that second half, I press on. Notice who's doing the pressing on. You might want to circle that big I in the middle of the page there. Don't say, God, if you want to change me, you're going to have to change me. Sorry, I am who I am. No, God made you in in his own image. What you've done with that image may be responsible for the hot mess that you are today. We were made in the image of God. But Paul says, I press on. I continuously continue pursuing Christ Jesus and His changes going on in my life. It's a continuous and ongoing activity. Paul says, I have to do this. God's done His part. He has sent His Son. He has given us His Word. He's shared with us His Holy Spirit. What are we waiting for? Will God to do the work? Oh, He will help you in the work, but He needs somebody who's willing to get off the dime and actually open their Bible, actually read, actually pray, actually worship, actually let Him take the things of the world out of your heart. Our greatest need today is Jesus Christ. Whatever you think your greatest need is today, if it isn't Jesus Christ, you're wrong. Satan has sold you a bill of goods. Let Jesus Christ be your sole obsession. Everything else will fall into place. You know that. Jesus said, food, clothing, and shelter. He said, seek first the kingdom of God, and those other things will be added to you as well. But those are the things that we tend to pursue first, not the kingdom of God. So we've got to reverse our priorities and make the pursuit of the kingdom of God Who's the king of that kingdom? Jesus Christ. You want to know him intimately, deeply. In fact, the word know is used in in the Bible in the gospel accounts, where the angel Gabriel tells Mary, Oh, you're gonna get, you're gonna have a baby, and and she says, Well, how, how am I gonna have a baby? Inasmuch as I have the literal Greek, have never known a man. That speaks of sexual intimacy. She was a virgin. But it speaks of intimacy in our relationship in knowing God. Not in a sexual way. That's a perversion. But in a deep and intimate and personal way. That's how the word is often used biblically. I want to know Christ. That's what Paul is saying. That's the obsession, uh, the overwhelming obsession of his life. He says, I'm not there yet, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Why did Jesus Christ take hold of you? Same reason that he took hold of Paul, to reveal God's perfect will for your life. That's why God laid hold of you, so that you might know his perfect will for your life. It is centered in Jesus Christ and your pursuit of him. That's why God laid hold of you. That's why he saved you. Not so you, so you could be a couch potato for all eternity, watching sports and being obsessed with X, Y, or Z. That's not why God saved you. He saved you so he could reveal his perfect will to you. There's people that need to be saved. There's folks that need to be prayed for. You're God's man or woman of the hour. That's why he laid hold of you, to reveal his perfect will. But most of us are so busy caught up in the permissive will of God, we don't, even, we don't even know that we're missing the perfect will of God. The permissive will of God is the dumb stuff that He lets you do. It's permissive, but it's not the perfect will of God. Paul says in writing to the Corinthians, he said, "'All things are lawful for me, but not everything is spiritually profitable.'" And that's what the church should come to the realization of of today. What is God's will for me? Why did God take hold of me? Obviously, it starts with salvation. uh, Because it's not God's will that any should perish. 2 Peter 3, 9, Ezekiel told us that in chapter 18 in the Old Testament. It, It matures in sanctification. The perfect will of God is that we keep learning and keep growing. If you're not further ahead spiritually today than you were five years ago, something is very wrong. If you haven't noticed in the raising of children, they don't reach a sudden age and then start going backwards. I wish we did. Wouldn't it be neat if uh, as soon as you hit 50, you started going backwards? And then as soon as you hit 25, you started moving forwards again? And just kind of live in that 25 to 50 zone? I mean, that's the sweet spot. That's the sweet spot, because after 50, it's all, yeah. (laughs) But the good part about living on a roller coaster is uh, you pick up speed going downhill. (laughs) Time flies. Time flies. It sure does. There is a reason that God took hold of you, according to verse 12, that you might know him better. Don't be lazy. Don't be fearful. And that covers everybody in the room. Don't be lazy. Don't be fearful. Verse 13, Paul says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I'm not there. But one thing I do. Say one thing. One thing I do. That kind of narrows the field, doesn't it? Here's what we all need to do. Forgetting what is behind. Did you notice the ing ending on forgetting? That means you're going to have to do it a lot. That means you're going to have to keep dealing with it every time a dysfunctional past comes up, every time some fearful experience comes up or some depraved or demonic or ugly thing from your past is rubbed in your nose again, you have to bring it to the cross of Jesus Christ again and again and again, forgetting and continuing to continue <laughs> forgetting. When Paul says I, one thing, I, I want to find out what that one thing is. It's two-pronged here, but do it. I want to do that one thing. It narrows life down to a, a, a singular priority. But first of all, notice who is doing the one thing. Look at that. But one thing who does? I do. This is on you. A shrink can't do it for you. A counselor can't do it for you. A psychiatrist, psychologist cannot do this for you. Paul says, I have to do this. Take, I have to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. I've got to repent of the things that I did and then walk away from them and never bring them up again. I need to renounce those things that Satan had a hold of me on before. Some of you wonder how your, your life wound up where it is today because you have not renounced something demonic in your past. Have you brought that to the Lord? Have you repented of Ouija boards or drugs or alcohol abuse or violence? I mean, these things are demonic strongholds that can get some hooks into your life and drag you around for a long time. Have you repented of those? Have you renounced those? Have you brought those to Jesus Christ and asked Him to take those things away from you? I have to take captive every thought, and only I can do it. Only I can rearrange my priorities to reflect God's. What's your one thing? Paul says, one thing I do. So what, what's your one thing? For guys, it tends to, we, we tend to see ourselves in light of our occupation. That's what you do. That's not who you are. You're a child of God. First and foremost, before what you do to keep beans and weenies on the table, what you do as a job is virtually irrelevant. It is your mission field, to be sure. It's where you live out your Christian example. But that is not who you are. It's what you do. And sometimes men place way too much self-worth and identity in their job instead of who they are in Christ Jesus. I constantly want to be examining in my own life, what's my one thing? And is it mine or is it the Lord's? Forgetting what is behind. I think that many people, and I don't, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to sound sexist. But I find that women especially have a hard time forgetting the past. And they allow Satan to bring up dysfunctional and ugly things from their past, and they are replayed in the mind, and replayed, and they think about it, and they dream about it, and it comes up, and they talk about, oh, I've forgiven them. But it, it keeps coming up again and again and again and again. Paul says you're going to have to keep on forgetting what is behind. Your successes as well as your failures, though, some of us live in the past and say, Oh man, when I was, I used to do this and I played professional sports or I, I was rich and famous and handsome and good looking. All of those things flee with age. I mean, just bite it off and say, That's okay. That's okay. Forget the past. If you've brought it to the cross, if you've been forgiven that sin, if you've renounced that sin, what is the purpose of bringing it up again? to add more guilt, to add more shame, to continue making somebody else pay the price for a sin that they've repented of against you? You've got to forget the past. Stop bringing it up. You can't live in the past, but you can allow it to control and dictate your present and rob you of the joy of your future. But I'll tell you what, when husbands and wives fight, the first thing that happens is to bring up the past. You know, you always do this. You start off with something like, well, you said you are going to fix the fridge, but you didn't. Well, I'm going to get to it. I am, I, I'm trying to. i only got 40 things on my to-do list today. I'll get to it as soon as I can. Well, you always do that. You always... Pr- what? No, you, We just got away from the fridge, and we're talking about now I've got a tendency that goes back to when I was two years old. I never fixed the fridge when I was two years old. So, no, I don't think I always do that. But what's Satan doing? Trying to cause division in the home. Forgetting the past. Well, don't you remember? You know, seventeen women have an incredible memory. Seventeen years ago, when we were at this place, and you you were wearing that blue shirt, and you had on these pants, and you, you and the guys going, "Are you kidding? I I don't remember what I put on this morning unless I look down at me." I, guys, going, that doesn't hit the radar, but women have this attachment to the past that I don't understand. I've never been a woman, so don't ask me to think like a woman. I can't. I'm get in touch with your feminine side. I've checked all sides. I don't have a feminine side. My blood comes out It says, I'm a guy. I'm sorry. I can't. I can appreciate why women are, but don't let Satan victimize you. Don't let Satan rob you of the joy of your marriage because you keep on dragging up the past. Paul says this one thing the past is good for, forgetting, forgetting it. Don't bring it up again. If you bring it, let me do, just be crystal clear. If you bring it up again, you are in sin. Was I delicate enough with that? I did, Am I clear? If you bring up the past again, once it's been announced and renounced and repented of and talked out, drop it. You give it to God, He's got it. Don't keep rubbing each other's noses in it. We have all sinned and fallen short the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Then who are you to judge another servant? Before his own master, Jesus said he must stand, and he will stand. He will stand. You see, if all husbands and all wives and all single people were doing this one thing that Paul is doing, the whole world would be a better place. The whole world would be a better place. This one thing has two prongs to it, but these two aspects go together. Forgetting, something that I have to do that God will help me with, but I am a co-participant in that action. God will do his part. He will continue, but I must do mine. i got to stop bringing it up. got to stop living in the past, dwelling on the past, and keep on doing it. I, you don't want to be hamstrung by a dysfunctional past. It will cripple you in the present. It will rob you of your joy in the future. Don't do it. There is one great advantage of of getting older. You forget more. (laughs) I like that. I like that. You know, sometimes Kathy will say something, well, do you you remember this? God, no. (laughs) That left my brain case a long time ago, baby. You remember when we ate at that restaurant last year up in so-and-so place? No idea. No idea. Forgetting the past, looking forward to it, lies ahead in Christ Jesus. Don't look to the past because that's who we were. It's not who we are, and it is certainly not who we are going to be in Christ Jesus. That's why it's wrong to dwell in on that past instead of letting it go and straining toward what is ahead. Boy, those are racer terms. I mean, Paul was fond of these sports analogies of Olympic runners and wrestlers and things like that throughout his, his writings. But he says, I'm straining towards what is ahead. Have you ever wondered why track runners at the finish line always lean into it? They No, they're not. It's not because they're tired. It's because you can... <laughs> It's because you can break the tape sooner than the guy next to you if you lean into it. That's why. So they always finish the race with their hands out like that and pushing themselves as far forward as they possibly can. That's what Paul is using here as a word picture. This is what I'm doing. I see the finish line in view. We're not going to be here on this earth forever. Christ is coming back soon. And I want to run this race with everything that is within me. We're almost at the finish line. Now's the time to be doing this. Not slacking. Not slacking, but running as hard as you possibly can in this race. Straining to, to stretch yourself forward. And again, it's an action that I must continually do. But God will help me. It's worded that way in the original Greek. In the middle voice, it makes me a co-participant in the action with God. God will help me break that tape. I'm a co-participant. God will do his part. I must do mine. Now, Paul says, I'm straining toward that which is ahead. Well, what's ahead? Jesus in eternity. It's coming sooner than you know. I've left the start line. I'm running my race. I don't look back. I look forward. I don't look to the left or the right because ultimately I realize it doesn't matter who's to the left or the right. I'm running my own race. I'm competing against only myself. There may be other runners on the field, but that is irrelevant. I must run my own race, but I should run it at 110%. I don't want to be slack and I want to do everything I can. I must run my own race. I can't run somebody else's. As well, I'm the only one that can hold myself back in this race. Nobody else can hold you back. No circumstance can hold you back. No person can hold you back. Satan himself can't hold you back. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Satan doesn't stand a chance. His greatest fear is that someday you're going to live up to your potential as a Christian. Every day you wake up, your second part of your prayer ought to be, Satan, I'm the one that God warned you about. Watch out. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. A San Francisco columnist wrote this a while back. Quote, every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be eaten. Every morning... A lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you are a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better be running. Uh, okay. Doesn't the Bible describe Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? 1 Peter 5.8, you're in a race. He's on your heels. He's got your scent. What are you going to lollygag? A lion is coming at you at 40 miles an hour behind you. You're going, I'm doing good. I'm all right as a Christian. That's, is that running a race? Well, that's how some guys run. No, run like there's a lion after you because there is. In the Christian life, it's not simply enough to wake up, we're called to run. To become more like Christ and to press on to, to godliness. Verse 14, that's what Paul says. I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Eternity lies at the doorstep. The finish line is in view. I want to finish this race well. When people, when pastors talk about finishing the race well, they're usually talking about building their empire. And having something to pass on to those behind them. More churches or bigger churches or TV churches or satellite or bigger budgets or more people. That's not finishing well. Read your Bible, dude. Finishing well means you finish as well as Paul did. And he didn't even have a church. He'd started many churches, but he saw them all as the church of the living God. They weren't his, and he wasn't building his kingdom, and he wasn't padding his salary. That's not finishing well. Finishing well has spiritual connotations that mean I am more like Christ on my deathbed than I was the days, weeks, months, and years before. That's what that means. I press on. I pursue. I, I give it everything I've got because of the prize. The winner of the Greek foot races, they got a little plated wreath put on their head that wilted as quickly as it was plucked from the vine. It was temporary, our crown, our inheritance. It'll never perish or fade, 1 Peter 1.4 tells us. That's what we're running for. Avoid a life of endless distractions that are worldly and temporary by nature. Don't be too busy for God. Reassess your spiritual priorities constantly. And ask yourself the question, are the things that I'm chasing after paying eternal dividends, or is it just fleshly distraction? These verses are certainly a reminder that God has done and will do his part, but I must do mine. Don't be a lazy Christian. The last day's church is characterized by the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, lukewarm. That's just another word for lazy spiritually. Jesus said, you think lukewarm is okay? Here's the problem with lukewarm. If you're really, really hot, if it's 200 degrees out, you know you need to get out of the sun or you'll die. So you do something about it. If you step outside and it's 40 below zero and you're in your bathing suit, you know if I don't get inside soon, I will die. You should die if, if you were stupid enough to go outside in your bathing suit at 40 below zero, but that's another discussion. The issue is if I'm too hot or too cold, I know I must change. But when I'm lukewarm, I don't feel the need to change at all. I don't read, I don't pray, I don't study, I don't worship, I don't fellowship, but I'm okay. That's the very definition of lukewarm. That's, and here's the problem. Jesus said, while you may be okay with lukewarm, he said, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I don't know what that means to you, but it's certainly not a pleasant picture, but entirely faithful to the Greek, Jesus said he's nauseated by lukewarmness in the lives of his children. So if you think you're okay with God and you're lukewarm, you're not. You're not okay with God and your lifestyle is not pleasing to God. This is a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings of becoming like him in his death, as Paul said back there in verse 10. That's what defines a spirit-filled, on-fire Christian that is pleasing in the Lord's sight. So he says in verse 15, and as, as we close out, uh, th- this chapter. There are spiritual heights, he says, yet to be attained. Uh, don't become complacent, lukewarm, lackadaisical. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. All of us who are mature, you should take these admonitions seriously. And if on some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. In other words, you don't have to agree with Pastor Jim this morning, it's okay. God will make it clear to you. And I pray that he never lets you put your head on a pillow and sleep for one single second until you become mature and see things the way that Paul did. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to change. The status quo is what most people live for today. The status quo is less than God's perfect will for you earnestly pursue Him. That is what God saved you for. Put into practice these truths. He says that in verse 16 there. Only let us live up to what we've already uh, obtained. Put Put into practice the truth that you do know. You know lying's wrong? Then stop lying. You know that stealing's wrong? Stop stealing. You know that looking at impure things on the computer or cell phone is wrong? Then stop doing it. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Uh, No doubt the greatest need amongst God's people is to live up to what they already know. Can you, boy, if I had a nickel for every Christian that I shared an exhortation with and they smugly and self-righteously said, I know that, pastor. There's something in my flesh that just wants to slap them. But you can't because I'm a pastor. So I I refrain from slapping, mostly, mostly. It's not what you know. I bring it to your attention because you're not doing it. It's a greater sin to know what you should do and not be doing it than if you hadn't ever known in the first place what was the right thing to do. But to say, I know. I don't doubt that you know that, but you're not doing it. You're not doing it. It's not knowledge that saves you. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. I press on, Paul says. I run this race. And all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Only let us, verse 16, live up to what we've already obtained. Join with others in following my example. That is, as I follow Christ, obviously. Take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. The the lifestyles of Christians should be a model for others to follow. When people look at you, do they see Christ? Do they hear Christ coming out of your mouth? Or do they hear the filthy language of the world and the things of this world? don't, Don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. That's all Paul is saying. Don't be a Please, please, don't be a I know Christian. It sounds so smug. I know that. You can't help those people. They're smug. They're self-righteous. They're not teachable at all. I hate that Pharisaic attitude that crops up in people. I know that, Pastor. I'm not telling you because you don't know it. I'm telling it to you because you're not doing it. And we should Do it. Paul is practical Do it. He's practical above all else. Verse 17, join with others following my example. Take note of those that do. For as I've told you before and now say again, even with tears in my eyes, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. How do they do that, you ask? Verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Why? Because their God is their stomach, not physical, literal stomach. Their God is the things that feed the flesh, the things that make them feel good. It's the toys of, of the world. It's the, it's the things, it's the pursuit of money and fame and, or whatever else the world is chasing after. It's the opposite of, of salvation, this destruction that he's talking about is But it's due because of their deep self-centeredness. We live in such a narcissistic age where it's all about me, me, me. I want, I want, I want. And their appetites and their desires come first. That's what it means when it says their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Oh, do you know how much I can drink, man? I I drank everybody at the bar. You should be ashamed of that should be ashamed of that. And yet have to hear stupid stuff like that all the time. You do too. That's why you laughed. I get it. We should be ashamed of the things that we once gloried in. Here's the problem at the end of verse 19. Their mind is on earthly things. That's why they're due destruction. I don't want to get into a heavy theological discourse as to what that means, but would you admit it doesn't sound good? Destruction? So, if your mind is obsessed with earthly things, there is that warning, that destruction awaits those that only and always pursue the things, earthly things, fleshly things. But our citizenship, verse 20, he says, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The people of Philippi, this is an interesting historical Insight The people of Philippi were living there in Philippi, Greece, as colonists. They were citizens of Rome. Their citizenship, they prided themselves in being Roman citizens. They had a huge Roman colony there. Similarly, Christians, while living on earth, have our citizenship in another place as well. We live here, but our citizenship is. Is in heaven. And that should be reflected in our priorities, shouldn't it? It should be reflected in our priorities because people are watching. They know that we claim to be a Christian. But they when when something inappropriate comes out of our mouths, they say, Hey, well, I thought you were a Christian. Somebody told me the other day after cussing up a blue streak. I, I don't I don't often tell people I'm a pastor because then they put their walls up and act like, you know, Tommy Good Shoes or something. So I don't often tell people out there, this guy was cussing up a blue storm, and he goes, oh, I'm sorry for my French. That's not French. That's garbage. (laughs) There's some French for you. But we, we dismiss the vulgarity that comes out of our mouth. Well, that's okay. God knows my heart. No, what comes out of your mouth is reflected by what's in your heart. That's what the Bible says. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So garbage in, garbage out. So what should that remind you to do? Well, if you invite me over for dinner, don't cuss and then call it French. I'm sorry for my gutter talk. I'm sorry for my foul mouth. I need to repent of that before the Lord and renounce it once and for all because it is a mark of immaturity. You should have stopped cussing about three days after you were saved. That should, be, should have been one of the very first things to go because it degrades the name of Christ whose name I carry. Our, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. I want to act like it. I want to think like it. Verse 21 And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. I mean, someday every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. They may not be saved, but even the demons bowed before him and said, Lord, you know, don't cast us into the abyss before our time. If you come to torture, even the demons acknowledge him as the Son of God. We know who you are. You're the Son of God. Someday, Jesus is going to bring everything under his control. And someday, look at this, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Most of us over 50 are looking forward to that transformation. That Greek word is metamorphosis. I go in a caterpillar and I come out a butterfly. That's working for me. I I, I like the encouragement that I find in that passage. Our change will be someday a transformation. Remember when Jesus went up to the top of the mountain and and he took uh, a couple of disciples with him while the rest of them were downhill? And all of a sudden, it says he was transformed. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration, but the word is metamorphosis right here. And all of a sudden, his, his face shone like the sun, his clothes whiter than any white that any man has ever seen. It was radiant. Moses and Elijah showed up. The voice of God speaks from heaven. And I'll bet the boys on the mountain with Jesus were blown away. Here's the promise of Scripture. Someday you're going to look just like that. Someday you're going to look just like Jesus. We won't be limping and gimping. We're not going to wake up with aches and pains and, oh, yeah, I remember when I broke that pinky finger 10 years ago, you know. The aches and pains... It'll all be in a rearview mirror. I can't wait. I can't wait. Transform us. I think that before a physical transformation takes place, the Lord would be well pleased if a spiritual transformation took place first. Here's how you can have a personal transformation. Uh, Your homework assignment this week is is to go back to Philippians 3, starting in verse 10. Reading it slowly enough and letting it penetrate your heart. I want to know Christ. Just pray that prayer. Lord Jesus, I want to know you better than I do, more deeply and more intimately than I do. I want to know the power of your resurrection. It's the power to say no to drugs and alcohol and all of the things that used to once entangle me. That's the power that the church needs today, the power to live a victorious and God-pleasing life. We need help to do that. You can't do that on your own. Smart people know that. Press on to take hold of Jesus Christ. That's why he took hold of you. Reading down a little bit further in the the chapter that we just covered, forgetting what is behind. Put that into practice. Repent, renounce, never bring it up again, nor allow Satan to. forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead. It's a two-branched approach here. I've got to take captive every thought, especially my dysfunctional past, and I've got to strain in this race towards Jesus Christ. The finish line is in view. This is how you can become the Christian that God wants you to be. This transformation, this spiritual transformation is yours. It is yours. But only if you're going to put a little effort into it and do what we just read. This is where my responsibility ends. This is where your responsibility begins. I have done my part to tell you exactly what God wants to do in, on, and through you. And now, it's between you and God. Okay? Now it's between you and God. If you do nothing different, nothing will change. Einstein once defined insanity. Insanity is continuing to do the same thing over and over and over and again, expecting a different outcome. He said that's the definition of insanity. But we do the same thing ourselves because we're creatures of habit. Well, I always do it this way. I've always done it that way. Yeah, but look at the hot mess you're in. Yeah, but I've always thought this way. I've always done it this way. Yeah, and where's it gotten you? Are you happy with where you're at? Then we need to do something different. If what you're doing now is not working for you, do something different. Huh? Now, that's a $100 an hour counseling session right there. That's all you need. Feel free to put your tithes and offerings in the plate to pay for it on on your way out. It's as simple as it gets. God in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's just wanting you to know Him better so He can know you better and reveal Himself to you more and more these last days. God wants you happy. Stop fighting Him. Sounds, Sounds weird, doesn't it? God wants you happy. Stop fighting him on this. Stop insisting on your way when his way is so much better, so much better. I want you to stand with me for a second. You may choke on these words, but I want you to say them out loud anyway. <coughs> Close your eyes, bow your heads. I want you to say this out loud with me. God change me.